Hello, this is Courtney Act. I am at the National Gallery of Victoria here in Melbourne because I am going to see queer stories from the NGV Collection Exhibition. Excuse me, can you tell me which way to the queer exhibition? You can take the elevator up to level three. Thank you. Hello, welcome back to the NGV's Queer Podcast. I'm Courtney Act. To begin, I want to acknowledge the Wurundjeri Woi Wurrung people as the traditional owners of the land on which this exhibition and this podcast takes place. I pay my respects to their elders, past and present, and Aboriginal elders of other communities who may be listening. We're going a little bit in depth and having some great conversations with some of the curators here at the NGV and also some of the artists whose work is on display at the NGV's new free exhibition titled Queer from the 10th of March through until the 21st of August 2022. The exhibition explores the NGV collection through a queer lens and it's pretty massive. It includes over 400 works by artists who identify as queer, some of whom who lived at a time when such identification wasn't possible, and works by artists who are not queer but with a connection to queer histories. It's actually one of the most comprehensive thematic presentations of artworks relating to queer history that's ever been presented in an Australian art institution. So I'm really excited. I hope that you're able to get in to the NGB to see it for yourself because there's so much to take in and so much to enjoy. Today we're talking queer sensibilities. That's our theme and I'm going to be talking to Linda Jackson AO. She has been a pioneering figure in fashion design since the early 1970s when she formed a creative partnership with designer Jenny Key. She's known for her bold silhouettes and prints drawn from the Australian landscape, her spirituality, as well as rich collaborations with other artists. Also in this episode, I'm going to be chatting with Angela Hessen, curator of Australian art. We talked about this theme of queer sensibilities. And now I'm joined by the curator of Australian art, Angela Hessen, and we are going to be talking about queer sensibilities. Welcome, Angela. Thank you so much, Courtney. I'm thrilled to be here. Now, um, queer sensibilities, I guess the title queer um, in some people's minds might raise questions about, you know, its historic context being used as a word of oppression for the queer community. And then also when we're looking back at First Nations communities or we're looking at ancient communities where that language didn't exist, people might have questions about how this terminology is applied. But in this conversation, we're talking about the sensibility of queer. So something perhaps beyond gender and sexuality. Tell me what queer sensibilities means. Well, it's a very complicated question. Um, <laughs> and I think that's really the perfect way to contextualize it in terms of the, the difficulties attached to that word in its various kind of historical usages. Because in terms of sensibility, queerness, I think, is still linked to gender and sexuality. But it is also, I think, about something more elusive. And when we think about those historical contexts and a lot of ways that queerness was defined by um, 
forces that were hostile to it throughout history. It's often been about kind of trying to pin down that identity to attach an idea of a queer identity to facts and acts and something that could be criminalised, legislated against and understood in a way kind of boxed in. And I think what's so exciting about talking about queer sensibilities is that this is really about the kind of really defiant um, and inventive, imaginative rejection of that kind of idea. So in many cases, this is related to ideas of um, transgressions around ideas of a gender binary or um, fixed ideas of sexuality and desire. But it's also about um, the problematization or the inversion of all other kinds of hierarchies that define social positioning. So even the ways we think about um, taste or class, for example, ideas about what's high or low art. Queering is really about um, playing with all of those different categories and hierarchies and often undermining them um, in some really funny and subversive and often beautiful ways. I've read some ideas about, you know, queer and queer theory. And like you said, people's desperation to try and categorize and label and name and and I guess in a way queer is the antithesis of that yeah exactly I mean queerness is you know I think inherently about fluidity um Mm. and it's about challenging those kinds of parameters and of course you know parameters have moved all through history um you know the parameters that were normalized through much of the 20th century weren't those of the ancient world they were different to those of the 18th and 19th centuries but the idea of queerness really is I think celebrating um, a freedom from those kind of um, social and cultural parameters and there's also a real kind of aesthetic freedom in that too so um, even the idea of embracing decoration ornament you know these are aesthetic categories that historically have often been marginalised or feminised, you know, the decorative in art is less serious um, than than something that relates to content or form, you know. And I think this idea that surface can really mean something, that surface and excess and ornament can carry some quite subversive messages is a really kind of powerful one too. Mm. And, um, well, I guess some of these... um... I've got some some pictures of some of the pieces that sort of typify queer sensibilities in this queer exhibition at the National Gallery of Victoria in front of me. The first one here is the worst. Uh oh. Worcester. Worcester. Oh, Worcester. Worcester. <laughs> one of those really annoying English words. <laughs> I can say Worcestershire sauce, and I have a friend who lives in Worcester. That's, there you go. That's is, that's the word. That's what you're okay. after. <laughs> this is the word. In fact, I just put some Worcester sauce in my meatless rissoles that I made last night. Oh, it sounds delicious. <laughs> it was actually. Put some kimchi on it, melted a bit of cheese. It was delicious. Um, the This Worcester Royal Porcelain Co. Um, I'm looking at a teapot and look, just just to look at the teapot looks a little camp. It is a little bit camp. It's, it's, I mean, it's, it's really, I think, if you're wanting to give somebody a lesson in camp, this teapot's a great, it's a great starting point. Um, it's one of my favourite objects in the show. And teapots at the best of times are a little bit camp anyway. I think so. I think so. And I think with this one um, too, I mean, there's something so incredible about the fact of applying all of that extraordinary personality to a functional object. Um, mm. And, you know, and such a kind of 
domestic object to, you know, the teapot. It speaks of all of these kind of um, very um, polite rituals, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So it's, I think there's, there's something really kitschy and amazing about it. I'm going to try and describe this teapot that I see. I profess to not be the most knowledgeable when it comes to period fashion, but I can see that it's from 1882. There's two teapots, in fact. One, look, I don't want to be binary here, but I would say that one is more masculine in so much as it contains facial hair, a moustache. One is more feminine. And that there's a hand on the hip and then it's it's the I'm a little teapot dance that uh, we're familiar with from the nursery rhyme. There's a hand on the hip and the other hand is the spout. And the hand is sort of like, mm, what do you call this action? I, I think, I mean, I think the, the, the homophobic terminology is limp wrist, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. That's well, the... I don't know. I, <laughs> I embrace my limp wrists. <laughs> um, <laughs> it, there's a limp wrist as the spout. And then there's a um, sort of, not a ruffle collar. Um, you might be able to help me better with the description of the collar, like a cravat. Oh, it is really a ruff, I think. Yeah. Oh, okay. There you yeah. go. Um, yeah. We've got some <laughs> long sort of auburn hair, a very delicate porcelain face with a little bit of a lip and a little light blush on the cheek, and then some sort of hat on the head. Maybe it's not quite a beret, but sort of like a baggy hat, perhaps? Certainly quite jaunty, <laughs> <laughs> jaunty little hat. Um, I mean, the thing that's actually the key point about this is that um, actually what you're looking at there is front and back of the same teapot. Ah, and plot twist. So that's that's the plot twist. And that's the thing that really kind of makes this such an interesting object because um, it's literally this idea and, and for all that we kind of, you know, don't really want to ascribe a binary the, the maker of this was intending a binary, I think, yeah. to some degree, while also undermining it. But the idea is that you have, you know, two genders sharing this one porcelain body. Um, mm. And all of those kind of characteristics that you identified of being quite um, effete in both figures, the kind of the dainty pose and the decorative nature of the costume, all of these are really relevant to this period of 1882. Um, what that object's actually linked to is a really particular history. And there's an inscription on the base of it, which really makes all of this really clear. And then the inscription on the base says, fearful consequences through the laws of natural selection of living up to one's teapot, <laughs> which is a little bit of a mouthful and a little bit confusing um, without the sort of surrounding history. But it's actually referring to one of Oscar Wilde's best-known aphorisms, which dates to his years at Oxford in the late 1870s, when he became really well-known as a collector and dandy as well as an intellectual. And he had a famous collection of blue china, blue and white china, that he loved. And he's quoted as, as having said, um, I find it harder and harder each day to live up to my blue china. <laughs> so <laughs> the idea that, you know, of your collection as, as embodying this idea of aesthetic perfection that you can never really attain as a, you know, as a brute human, you know. So, and of course, it's said in a completely reflexive, you know, self-parodying way that, that so many of Wilde's um, comments are, are framed. So that's part of that quote. The fearful consequences through the laws of natural selection, this is referring to exactly what you'd think. So this is coming in the wake of Darwin's origin of species and all of the controversies that surrounded that. 
Um, there's a lot of misappropriation of Darwin's theories um, in the years around the 1870s, 80s, 90s. And this is precisely because conservative commentators are really anxious about the broader social transformations that they see taking place towards the end of the 19th century. They're very anxious about the challenge to religion that Darwin's theories constituted, so that's part of it. But another really big focus for um, conservative commentators at this point is the idea that gender and sexuality might be something other than fixed and immutable. And figures like the dandy, who we see as the um, male half of this teapot, are really the embodiment of that threat. This is idea, the idea that, you know, that men could be interested in taste and fashion and the finer things in life. Um, the idea that um, they might reject that kind of more um, military Victorian masculinity that's been celebrated for so much of the century. This is a really kind of dangerous idea for a lot of conservatives around this time. And so it's one that's parodied everywhere, including in objects like this one. And perhaps even a dangerous idea for conservatives around this time. Again, it's so interesting. I think something that comes up through these conversations with the curators is that the more things change, the more things stay the same. And I mean, this may have been 1882, so I guess 140 years ago. But it's interesting that, you know, we, we, we sort of feel like we might find ourselves in a similar place um, in 2022. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think this feels like a very relevant object um, to me. I also think what's really interesting about it is that the joke in it isn't necessarily where you might immediately think it is. To me, mm. this isn't really about satirizing dandies and athletes for all that it kind of looks like a caricature of a dandy to me that inscription on the bottom it's such a kind of ridiculous and hilarious premise that in mm. attempting to live up to an aesthetic ideal you risk becoming a teapot you know it's yeah. it's like you know it's inherently ridiculous and to me that then makes the kind of conservatism that underscores an idea like that ridiculous too. I mean, maybe that's my my bias <laughs> coming into play and the fact that I also really like the object. No, I mean, I would have just looked at this and gone, oh yeah, there's a camp looking teapot. But then through <laughs> your insights and hearing more about it, there's this huge, rich and wonderful world. It's time and history, the context of that era, the inscription on the bottom, um, you know, all of those cultural relevancies. It's so interesting to, to dive deeper into these things. It is. And I think, you know, the other thing that I, I think is really interesting too, though, is when you say your first impression of that would have been, that's a camp looking teapot. <laughs> I, that's just as legitimate in a way, you know, and I think that's one of the really beautiful things about camp um, is that camp is, you know, it operates as a language in a way, doesn't it? You know, it's very hard to actually define what makes mm. a camp object other than that we know it when we see it, you know, and and there is this kind of incredible combination of often a kind of a potentially a serious message with this wonderfully playful surface that defines camp. And there's a, um, there's a wonderful quote from Susan Sontag. She says that, Camp is, above all, a mode of enjoyment, not judgment. It's generous. It wants mm. to enjoy, you know. And mm. to me, that just sums it up so beautifully. You know, it's it's something that is available on so many levels. Um, yeah, it's it's um, it's kind of a great object and a great launching point into all kinds of, you know, bigger discussions. It is. The next item I'm looking at is by Peter Behrens. It's called The Kiss or De Kuss in another language, I'm going to go potentially German. Tell me about this piece. 
So you're right, it, um, Peter Behrens is German and he's actually best known as an architect, but this is um, probably the most well-known of his prints. I think it's an absolutely gorgeous image. Um, it's, it's one of the better known ones in the exhibition. I think what's really interesting when you look at this, what it is, is it's two faces kissing, as the title would suggest. And they are surrounded by this wonderful kind of fantastic entwining web of hair. It's almost like they're trapped in this fairy tale briar wood of hair. What I think is really interesting about this, Courtney, when you look at those two faces, do you ascribe gender to them? What, what do you see when you see that image? Not, I see two people kissing. They really could be any gender. I guess the only thing that perhaps feminizes is is the length of the hair, but that's obviously also, you know. For some reason, it's bringing up images of an album cover, like from the 70s. Did somebody use this imagery at all? Look, I don't know if this exact image was used, but you're spot on with the 70s because um, Art Nouveau, which of this, this is a wonderful example of Art Nouveau design. Art Nouveau had a huge renaissance in the 70s. Um, and so if, even if it wasn't this image, you will certainly have seen something like it on a 70s album cover. Um, yeah. And I think that, that kind of key point, though, about um, the identity of the two faces is to me what makes this such a kind of fascinating and beautiful image is I think everybody sees this, this image differently. I think we all um, project to some extent, our um, our idea of beauty or our desires or whatever onto onto this image. Um, it was widely read as being a an image of a lesbian kiss for quite a long time. Mm. I think because of the length of the hair, but mm. I don't know that that was necessarily the intention of the artist. And what I think is so interesting about it, again, in a similar way, I guess, to the teapot, is that this is very much embedded in that moment right around the turn of the century, when. There is an enormous openness to the idea of possibility and transformation. And we've got, of course, um, the suffrage movement is kind of in full swing around this period. Um, there are the first kind of the first real discussion about sexual identity in the wake of um, Oscar Wilde's trials and imprisonment. Um, and there's also a real interest in spiritualism and the supernatural around this time. There's the sense that that um, material moment of the turn of the century symbolizes something much bigger. And so all of that kind of fantastic possibility, I think, is encompassed in this kind of image. There's not any mm. kind of correct reading of it, but to me it's just wonderfully queer in that um, very broad sense. So from 1898, we're rolling forward into the 1900s um, with the piece by Ethel Walker, and it's titled Lilith, and it's an oil on canvas. It is. And it's a lovely big oil on canvas. Um, okay. <laughs> she's really monumental. Um, Lilith's a really fantastic figure um, from the kind of pre-Old Testament. Lilith's actually Adam's first wife. And... Scandal. I know. I know. Who knew? But, <laughs> and more than that, it, it gets, it gets um, even more intriguing. So Lilith is cast out of Eden for refusing to lie beneath Adam. And following that, she becomes associated very much in the Christian tradition with witchcraft. Um, she consorts with the devil. She's associated with vampires and demons. Um, I think she gives birth to demons often. I see, I see goats depicted here in the image. Is that in any way referential to the devil? 
Well, it's an interesting question. You see, I think what's happening here, and this, this is an image by Ethel Walker, who is a really interesting Scottish lesbian artist from the early 20th century. And what happens in this um, moment of kind of early feminist art, I guess, in the early 20th century, and literature as well, and music even, is that we see this figure of Lilith being appropriated in a completely different way. She mm. becomes, she's refunctioned as a figure of feminine independence and power and mysticism. And she's the mysticism. star of the show, because we can see in the background a, a sort of shadow of Adam perhaps sitting under the tree, but Lilith is the real hero of this story. Absolutely. And, you know, and, and I think, you know, when you identified there's the goat in there, but there's all kinds of other animals in there. Mm. And I think what's really beautiful here is that this is Lilith actually completely at one with nature and the environment. So this isn't Lilith cast out of Eden as kind of unnatural rejecter of men. This is Lilith as a kind of pantheistic, you know, pagan goddess. And this is actually also really relevant because Ethel Walker is very interested in alternative spirituality. She's very interested in ideas of natural femininity. So this is the period also when women are starting to reject corsets. Um, Walker doesn't want any of her models to wear makeup. Um, she's interested in an idea of femininity that's connected to the power of the natural world. Um, and I think this is interesting too because it speaks again to that intersectionality of queerness that there's a really strong association actually from the 19th century between the early stages of the women's movement and also environmental movements, animal rights movements, you know, and I'm, I'm really interested in this because they're all causes that are very close to, <laughs> to my own heart. Um, and, you know, and I think this image actually really exemplifies that it's taking back this, um, you know, the, the devil of the Old Testament and making her into something powerful and beautiful and invested in nature. You know, Lilith refused to lie down under Adam. Is Lilith a bit of a, a lesbian icon for that reason as well? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, and that's certainly why Walker was interested in her. Um, and she's, you know, she's beloved by a lot of other queer women from that period too. Virginia Woolf's right into Lilith, and Ethel Walker actually paints Virginia Woolf naked as Lilith. This isn't oh, wow. that image, but there is another one. So, yeah, absolutely. It's, that association is certainly made at the time. Oh, I love that. Next, we're throttled into the 2000s with an outfit by Romance Was Born, the uh, Sydney Fashion House. That's right. And that's the, um, the granny knit outfit. It's a, it's a fantastic thing in the true sense of the word. It's a, a full outfit on a mannequin from head to toe. You've got a combination of, I guess as the name would suggest, knitting. You've got this image of a of granny. But the, the other thing that is really fascinating is all of the accessories are adorned in shells. So there's this sort of slipper that's just encrusted with seashells, beautiful seashells, a bum bag or a fanny pack, depending on where you hail from, a gorgeous necklace, and then the hat is covered in shells. And then it looks like a, a beard that could, it could be crochet or it could be coral. I love the idea of a, of a detachable beard. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> I, I, um, you know, I think it's the most fantastic 
um, most fantastic outfit. And I think that thing that you that you mentioned, the idea of the, the slight incongruity of the granny motif and then all of the under the sea business, um, this comes from a collection that was looking, that had a very specific under the sea um, motif to it. But the granny connection is the idea of the grandmother's pearls of wisdom. And then there are all of the oysters and, and pearls and shells. So there's the link between the two. But I mean, Romance was born are also really interested in the idea of traditional craft, which often has a kind of kitsch association. And we're coming back here again, you know, full circle back to camp, you know. Um, and the idea of kind of elevating those kitsch and, you know, I think not that long ago, profoundly daggy um, <laughs> kind of media like knitting and crochet into the realm of high fashion with this kind of wonderful irony and humour and warmth. Um, you know, it's it's such a fantastic object. It is. And um, speaking of knitting, I feel like that can bring us up to the subject um, of today's conversation with artist Linda Jackson. Yeah, it certainly can. And actually, one of the reasons that um, that we thought it would be great to talk about Romance Was Born is that Romance Was Born cite Linda Jackson um, and Jenny Key as absolutely formative influences for them on their on their practice. Um, wow. So, you know, this is, I think, a, a really wonderful segue into talking about Linda's work. And I think Linda is someone who has um, really illustrated all of the wonderful ways in which um, fantasy and imagination can convey very kind of um, very diverse, very generous meanings. Um, and her fashion is kind of, it's inherently so imaginative and so subjective and it rejects so many of the parameters um, that govern traditional fashion as well. But, um, you know, I think there is a wonderful queerness to that, which is more kind of elusive than just thinking about binaries or sexuality. Well, Linda's fashion, you know, famously has incorporated Australian icons, be it flora or fauna or architecture, which wasn't being done at the time, I understand. And, and also Australia has long suffered from this sort of cultural cringe and the way Linda embraced those images feels like it queers that cultural cringe and celebrates it in such a beautiful way. And one thing that I really got from my conversation with Linda that you're about to all hear is A, the amazing artist collective of Linda Jackson, Jenny Key, Peter Tully, David McDermott, and their meeting in the late 60s and the strength of those friendships all the way through to today and the way that they all collaborated together to create art through this time. And then the other thing that was a real standout of this conversation was getting to feel Linda's appreciation and joy for Australia and Australiana and everything from First Nations art traditions to our flora and fauna and architecture. And I don't know, as someone who has lived overseas for the last sort of 12 years and and part of my identity is about being an Australian who doesn't live here and and grappling with that idea of the cultural cringe. There was something about this conversation that was like balm, like it was just like a nice warm hug listening to Linda uh, talk about the beauty and wonder of uh, the country that we live in. Absolutely. There's, there's such a sense of kind of warmth and love um, 
in in her design and it's interesting I mean I actually have a similar response because I didn't I've lived in Australia for quite a long time but I didn't grow up here Mm. um and I have that funny um you know that sense of kind of being divided between places as well um and also there is a really interesting thing that when you study art history I think it's getting better now but in the past there was such a Eurocentrism to it you know Mm. and um, and also the sense that kind of Australian Australian art movements are, you know, following the European, but, you know, 20 years later and, and often in a slightly less bold way, you know. And mm. I think this is something that is really changing now with Australian mm. art and design. Um, and, you know, and I think also the other thing that I really I love, and you mentioned this in Linda's work, is that incredible connection to nature. And in a way that almost touches back on, you know, we were looking at with with Ethel Walker and that idea of a a kind of pantheism and a connection between art and nature that there's not necessarily a binary of kind of nature culture artifice um, versus this kind of the the natural as as something that's, you know, antithetical to art. Mm. Um, Yeah, I think it's such a kind of beautiful, holistic approach to art and design. I also just want to wear all of them. Oh, yeah. Oh, well, I can't wait for everybody to um, listen to this conversation that I um, had with Linda Jackson, a lovely conversation. And I just want to say thank you so much for joining me and sharing all of your knowledge with me today, Angela. It's been an absolute joy to talk about queer sensibilities with you. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you, Courtney. And I just, um, I really hope, I really hope you enjoyed the exhibition. Oh, I can't wait. Well, this is the weird thing about podcasts, right, is that like, We're recording this now in the past and I've already spoken to Linda so I'm able to talk about her but I haven't seen the exhibition yet but by the time people listen to this the (laughs) exhibition will have been out. In fact maybe we should redo that. No (laughs) this is the wonderful thing about podcast. We're queering the timeline and we're queering (laughs) people's perception of time through this very act of being self-referential so uh, I think it's yeah. I think it's perfect in fact. It's perfectly queer. <laughs> exactly. Thank you so much Angela. Yeah. Thank you so much Courtney. It's been an absolute pleasure. Well, it's an honor to talk to you Linda Jackson. I just became incredibly aware the audience listening cannot see us but we can see each other and I I am the least fashionable I have ever been right now I'm wearing a white singlet it's very basic and very dull so I feel a little bit underdressed no no but I love love simple okay (laughs) (laughs) um you're in Mudgee at the moment I am in Mudgee I have a beautiful place in the bush that I bought in the mid 80s it's near Mudgy, and this I've got a fabulous exhibition of photographs that were taken during the fire. Mm-hmm. Our place burnt during the fire, and it's oh, at the gosh. new Mudgy Art Precinct. It's a fantastic gallery in Mudgy. So I'm the second exhibition, and it's been really amazing to work with this team. I started taking photographs when I was quite small, mm-hmm. and over the years, lots of photographs of Jenny out bush and with Peter and David and everyone with their, you know, with the frocks and things like that. So having an exhibition of the photographs that's based on the positive outlook that sort of seemed to happen with me being in lockdown out in this gorgeous place in the bush when it went from black to sort of psychedelic, luminous, fluorescent yellow and green with the regrowth. Mm. And it's just opened just last week, so it's fantastic. 
those names that you just casually dropped, of course, were the Jenny is Jenny Key, Peter Tully yes. and David McDermott. Um, you've been sort of a bit of a, a group of Australian artists and designers who, um, if not queer themselves, have lived sort of queerly, um, queerly inflected, it's been described. What, what, what has been, um, I don't know, I can imagine that there must be some lovely solidarity in having a group of people from, I think, the, the 70s, possibly before, that you've uh-huh. sort of been I met Peter Tully in 1968 wow. in Carlton and I was wandering, I was studying photography and I was walking down the street of actually in Carlton and this lovely lady stopped me, well, girl, we were teenage or not quite teenagers but and said oh look I'm Jenny why don't you um come and meet my friends they're just around the corner they'll love you you look fabulous and it was Peter Tully Clarence Chai Paul Craft and Murray Kelly in their cute little house in Cardigan Street in Carlton and it was like I walked in the door and we were immediately fabulous friends because they were making their costumes to go to an arts ball at that time and it was like well, that was the start of a really amazing, incredible, fabulously colourful, queer, all over the top, everything <laughs> friendship. <laughs> that just actually made me feel really emotional. Just the idea of in 1968 meeting this group of people that you've you've had parallels with and friendships with and, and relationships with up until today. Up How until beautiful. today. Yes, exactly. And... That's when, that's when I met Fran Moore and um, with Peter Tully. We actually, by 19, beginning of 1970, we were going to travel the world together. So the three of us were just really dear, close friends and we first went to live in New Guinea for quite a while, you know, for quite a few months and then travelled all through the east, through to Paris, a bit of London. Peter went off to Africa and, you know, was quite inspired by that, and then back to Thailand and then back down to Sydney to Melbourne. So, yeah, we... And it was learning about other cultures that was a really big thing for both Peter and I at the time and being inspired by what people wore and, you know, the beautiful, the jewellery and the costume and the pieces and the headdresses and things like that. So it was Mm. those early days of sharing those things, yeah. What's his, how important is that idea of sharing? Because I think so often artists can think of themselves as, as soloists or people can think of the artist uh, as being the only person involved in the process. But, I mean, I know it, there's, there's so much, uh, not just creative, like there's emotional support, there's support from friends and family. And, but I feel like having those other artists that you came up with, there must be... Uh, it must be really special and unique to have that sort of collective. It was very it was very unique and inspiring. I think we all inspired each other. Yeah. And the friendship the friendship was like that was really important, actually. And mm. keeping those friendships through all the difficulties, whatever the fabulous things that would happen or what emotional difficult the trials of life and different things like that that happened. Mm. We were always there for each other and we loved what each other did, mm. which is also a really big deal. And the inspiring and the collective of working together. With Peter, it was 
you know, when Jenny and I were doing the Flamingo Park shows, Peter made the beautiful jewellery. And, you know, when I met David, he started painting on the beautiful frocks. I'd cut out the shapes and he would paint them. And that started from like 1974. So, and it didn't stop. Our, our friendships remained through all our lives, you know, wow. which was amazing. Just beautiful. Um, I, I do want to come to the fashion, but you mentioned that you began studying photography. I studied fashion design at Emily McPherson College of Domestic Economy. At, mm -hmm. That was, it's part of RMIT now, mm -hmm. when I was age 15, 16. Mm -hmm. And I thought I wanted to do fashion illustration, actually, because that's what I loved. I loved drawing and painting. And when I went to Paran Tech to study the, the art, within a few days I ended up actually moving into the photographic department and maybe the people that I'd met at Parantech, maybe I thought the photography people were much more interesting, but I'd still already had loved taking photographs. My grandpa had a great big camera. Mum took photographs of me, lots of photographs, and I borrowed her brownie box camera and would take photographs of my doll dressed up or, you know, of which I have the photographs because mum kept them oh, wow. and taking photographs of Christine Wheeler who lived next door and I'd dress her up in some of mum's, you know, mum did mum and dad met ballroom dancing. So, oh, you know, wow. it's, it, the photography thing started sort of early. Yeah. And going to Paran Tech, Paul Cox was my teacher who was a really well-known filmmaker and Carol Jerrams became a really close friend who was an amazing photographer and I just kept on taking photographs. And so with Peter and Fran, when we were travelling, I took photographs. You took rolls of film with you and mm -hmm. I'd usually we'd get them processed and then I would send them back home to mum. So all those early days, those things were kept. And then when I met Jenny in the early days, 1973, she became my muse of my, you know, being able to, she'd become the Scribby Gum Tree or the Waratah and so we'd spend a lot of time. That was our meditative times together of being in the bush and, and the photography. So I think the photography in those days was important for all of us, recording, mm. you know, the documentation, plus we love sending, you know, when Peter and David travelled, sending postcards then, sometimes with, you know, there could have been our photograph that we wrote on the right back on of the back and of. things like that. So, yeah, the photographs in those early days were really important. In this series, uh, I've also spoken to William Young, uh, who talked a lot about, uh, you know, his photography in the 70s and 80s. And I asked him if he was aware of the importance and the significance of those photos at the time he was taking them. Um, and he, he said that he was more just there sort of documenting and it's only become in recent years where capturing those images of, even like the party scene, which I would imagine at the time would feel quite flippant and frivolous. You know, it's gay people having parties. But now we look back at this retrospective of a time capsule of, uh, in particular, gay Sydney. Um, those photos Absolutely. that you were taking at the time, were you, um, I guess, I mean, the fact that you're sending them back to mum, you must have known that of their Oh, they were important, I yeah. guess. And because of growing up with, with mums, the, the, the books that you had the photographs in mm -hmm. that we loved looking at. And because we were travelling for all those years, you couldn't take every, we, you know, we couldn't take everything with us. So mm -hmm. sending things back, mum kept all my aerogram letters, so there's all these descriptions of our travels. 
I'm so grateful actually too because it was the dates and where we were and different things like that. It's so fantastic to read about them. Yeah. And I think I loved the photographs and that's probably why they were important to me. And, you know, William's photographs for us in those days, we all looked fantastic and we were all having a really wonderful time. And it was, he was so amazing with taking his photographs. He just had a special feeling about him and we'd be all, it, it was fun and we'd be, you know, with Jenny and I, we'd always, you know, we were all dressed up and we'd all we were happy and we would, he just got some great photographs just because of the particular person that he is. Yes. In a way, they're posed but not sort of posed. There was yeah. something casual but fantastic about them. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I was never, um, I was always aware of William. I, I moved to Sydney and came out in the year 2000. Um, but I had never actually met him before, but I knew of his photographs, but I am aware of that idea of different photographers taking photographs. And there were some who just had a knack for making you feel comfortable, making the moment feel comfortable, capturing this photo. And then there were some that always felt like they were putting a square peg into a round hole. And I or think taking too many, you see, yeah. and then you can go, you can sort of veer off. But with William, he'd take one or two photographs and he captured something Mm. whereas you know I've had my photograph taken quite a bit over the years and sometimes in more recent times it's just going click 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 and you know you lose that essence of a beautiful photograph Mm. of the person after the after a few minutes or you know but William there was something that and he seemed just the way that he had his camera it wasn't always like right in front of you it was there, but it was him that you were looking at. So he was our special, you know, he was a special friend. Yeah. So tell me the photography, um, you said you started studying fashion and then sort of parlayed into photography. When did it veer back into fashion? Because, of course, you're known, you know, as this prolific Australian fashion well, designer. I always made my own clothes from age 12. Then I made them for my cousins and then for friends and that just kept on and you know with travel I'd still make the odd thing for the odd friend even somebody would lend me a sewing machine in Paris or in London and I could always whip up something for someone and it was you know when I met Jenny that we connected in such a fantastic way and I started just you know having the gorgeous vintage fabrics from Jobs Warehouse in Melbourne and just started, you know, working with her. We met just as she was opening the shop, Flamingo Park in the Strand Arcade. So, And, and that opened in 1973? Uh, yes, the end of 73. And our first fashion show was in the Hingara restaurant in 1974. And the next one that David had started hand painting for was at the Bondi Pavilion at Bondi Beach in 1975. Are there any of those... I'm sure they all stand out, but is there one that stands out? And tell me, what do you, what do you remember from that time? Like, can you describe? Oh, there's too many things to yeah. remember. What about um, Flamingo Park Frock Salon? Um, can you describe what it looked like? How big was it? Was well, it, it was actually quite tiny in the Strand yeah. Arcade, and it was blue metallic, incredible colour that Jenny's husband had done the decor, and it was had blue carpet. It was very colourful and quite different to any other sort of little boutique at the time and it was called Flamingo Park Frock Salon. (laughs) So it had this other vintage ethereal quality about it and 
after the 75, when I started making more evening wear, Jenny then was able to get the shop next door and had the doorway opened and that was painted vibrant red with pink taffeta curtains and that's where more of the dress-up sort of things were. And there was Peter's jewellery in there, you know, the beautiful plastic incredible pieces that he was making and, you know, it just grew from there of being creative and wanting to have our own fabrics printed. It was wonderful for me to be able to collaborate with with David and with some other artists too, Han and Bruce Gould was one in particular, and Deborah Laser. We could do whatever we wanted. So that's what was that's what was so exciting at that time. That's why we were free. There were no labels. It was quite different to the the way that, you know, everything's filed into certain names and letters and things now. But in those days we all a variety of oddball folks and we all collaborated and egged each other on and respected what each of us were doing and through friendship as well. Would you say the the only label really was artist back then? Probably artist, having fun, being creative and dressing up each other and and sharing was a big thing, yeah. Mm. And I know, you know, with Peter and David starting with with Mardi Gras in those early days. I mean, that was awesome what they were able to. They were already having exhibitions being creative together and separately, and David would hand paint the posters for some of Peter's exhibitions and things, because I've just been rereading, having, I couldn't stop suddenly actually, rereading just about some of the early things that were happening. And we were all having wonderful exhibitions around, around town, which then would inspire other younger people as well. But when the Mardi Gras started, that was amazing. Right. That was, that was it, I mean, obviously. Late 70s. Yeah, for someone like me looking back, um, I, you know, I know the history, but I wasn't there. Um, but for you and your memory, that was a significant moment. Because it meant everything that Peter and David were doing was bigger than anything had ever been seen before because they were so inspired by other festivals in other countries. And with Jenny and I, with our exhibition at the Powerhouse Museum that was on at the end of 2019 through 2020, they sponsored a Mardi Gras float for us called Step Into Paradise that was based on our exhibition. And that was awesome. And to be involved in that, and I had to make rainbow turbans and we wore rainbow colours on our float. And it just, to be there with everyone just for us brought back so many memories of all our dear friends who were no longer with us that were all part of the instigation of actually having a Mardi Gras festival. Was that your first time in the parade? Yes. It, it's a <laughs> to special, be on a float properly, it, yes. It's a special thing being in the parade, isn't it? I always say to people the best way to see Mardi Gras is to be in it. Right. Such and such how a- many times have you been in it? Oh, a few times. Quite a few. Um, yep. In the recent years, I've been hosting it on the TV, so I, I'm not much. There's something magical, um, and I know back in, back in the beginning, it didn't start where it did now. But these days, in that marshalling area down the bottom of Oxford Street, there's oh, like, where you're starting and yeah, getting ready. Everyone's gathered, and was such an energy. fantastic. Yeah, behind the scenes, yeah, yeah, backstage, so to speak, was was just wonderful. And then the parade And seeing starts. everybody getting ready and all the amazing costumes and going, oh, wow, that's, you know, everyone's looking amazing. Yeah. 
And then it's almost like that, that moment as well of you feel like a superstar as you go up Oxford Street yes. and there's just hundreds of thousands of people cheering. Well, I hadn't known anything quite like it and I thought, oh, wow, like... But then you suddenly, you really, you, you're moving, you're dancing and you're just waving and it makes you smile so much to see everybody. It was, it was just so beautiful, wow. really beautiful. Oh. And to get to share it with, um, you know, your, your, your family, I guess, your chosen family of friends, that must be yes. a beautiful moment as well. Yeah, and the memories of, you know, remembering all our dear friends who aren't around now but mm. you know still live on in, yeah. in in beautiful ways yeah um so back at flamingo park frock salon you started selling your fashion there and what were some of the the milestones or key moments that took things uh to the next level i think that the fact that we did a show every year once a year was the beginning of every year, we, Jenny and I would have all these ideas and then, then it would begin to involve Peter and David and, you know, with the models who were friends and things like that over the years. Every year was something that was important because we'd sort of, we worked in the fact that we could have different themes that were inspired by different parts of the country or by different artists that inspired us and the collaboration of, like, for example, working with David, working out what were we going to do together? And I'd cut out the shapes and he'd take them home and hand paint them. And, you know, so so working together like that was, we could do anything. Mm. You know, he painted incredible delicate gum leaves on dresses. Then they started to become more and more abstract. So, you know, documenting them over the years. And because we always recorded and our shows were photographed, William was there actually, of course, with... <laughs> every show so you know having all those photographs means that we've we've got it all documented so it's easy for us to look back and tell those stories of all the different artists that we were working with and when did the i guess the australian flora and fauna elements uh start appearing in the work day one day one <laughs> what was it about because that was dress. very unique at the time right there was no one else who was doing that you sort of saw this no, wonder not, and not included how it. we were looking at it well just to have traveled for me in all those countries jenny lived in london all that time arriving back being inspired by this incredible country the blue sky the beautiful flowers the first dress that came out in the first show in chinatown was the opera house dress because it had opened the year before it was wow. simple blue with white sails that made the sleeve and the collar and around, you know, applique. It was like, well, it was obvious, of course. Why not have the Opera House dress as the first dress? I was just looking at a photograph of, uh, of you and Jenny um, in those two blue dresses. I think uh, one of them was the Opera House dress and yep. I think it was called Bondi Blue was the name of the colour. And yes. I just looked at them and I, I, I was... There's, there was such simplicity and such beauty. I put a big smile on my face looking at the two of you and those two dresses together and trying to, you know, imagine that time. And I, I, I've lived overseas for the last sort of, I don't know, I guess 12 years. And yeah, sometimes we Australians have a cultural cringe and it seems that you didn't or that no. you embraced the Australianness of it all and celebrated it. Yeah, we embraced the Australianness. We loved it. The Opera House was extraordinary. 
our birds are incredible and colourful and wild and the animals are and the flowers are extraordinary. It's like I, I'm not in London or in England or Europe. Why do I need to do a rose like a waratah so much better <laughs> that we just looked to what was around us and wanted to know more, you know, wanted to know more about Indigenous life and the land and the beauty and things like that. So it's just was – and we were so far away from everyone else that it didn't really matter – they didn't know what we were doing and we were having such a great time. I guess learning about things like that when you're growing up as well is if you love painting and drawing that you are, you're looking out yeah. at something and or if you're taking photographs of the landscape, you're actually looking at it. So well, It feels like you're ahead of the time in, in, in that essence and another way that you're ahead of the time was that you were such an early adopter of sustainability within fashion and also celebrating and elevating Indigenous design and producing in Australia. Um, it sounds like that feeds in from that idea that we were just talking about, but even the idea of sustainability. Oh, that was important for me at the time because knowing, having travelled and been to different factories and, you know, where people hand make things and then you go to a factory where you know that the dye is toxic because they're bleaching the fabric and I just learn about those things really early. I'd like to know or if I could visit the places if I was getting fabric from India. I went to India and I went to the places that I was getting the saris and where I was getting something printed. I think I always liked to know the source and that's what happened when I fell in love with opals, of course. I had to go to Lightning Ridge in Cubipede in Queensland to go to where the opals come from and to meet the people who are mining and working with them. So, you know, it's just that thing of getting to know more about the people that you're collaborating with. Wow. I think that's something for young Australian artists in all of that because we do live in such a connected world with the internet these days and it's very easy, I think, for Australians to discredit the beauty and the wonder um, of, of our country um, and sort of place higher value and higher importance in things from overseas or it would be fashion or celebrities or art or culture but I think it's so just in what you're saying there it's so important to remember and to to really dig into uh the beauty and wonder that that we have here because it is so unique yes and you know we were here and we were we traveled over there but I didn't want to go and live back there yeah this I was happy to be here and because we were so far away from the rest of the world in those days it seemed much further Hmm. you know quite different with having to make phone calls and you'd have to fly everywhere or get a boat. Mm. It was amazing to be here and to be isolated but in an incredible, beautiful place and mm. be inspired by it. We were a tiny business really for both of us without a little shop and then when I had my studio where I made everything and people loved it. That's what kept it going is because that the relationship that you'd have between the people that you were making clothes for or who were coming into the shop or coming into the studio. I love that. I want to talk about um, fashion as a signifier of sexuality and I guess identity at large. I I had a, a pivotal moment in my sort of, I guess, like gender and sexuality, which was not all that long ago where I went shopping with a group of friends, two friends, yep. um, and I, I never trusted my own style advice because I would always end up coming home with things that I liked but never went together or you could they're a bit too loud you could only wear once or um and I went shopping with some friends and through their sort of guidance where were you shopping we were shopping uh in Los Angeles right um and going around to all of these shops and and 
they were sort of listening and seeing what I liked and then um, allowing me, celebrating me, giving me the confidence to buy them. And we put together this yeah. outfit, outfit that we called Summer Sorbet. And it was simply just a lot of different pastels in this one outfit. But it yeah. was prior to that an outfit I, I probably wouldn't have bought if I was by myself because I, I would have, I don't know, second-guessed myself, but having them to support me there. And it, weirdly that outfit, this we've called Summer Sorbet, was yeah. a pivotal moment in me really embracing my, I guess, my gender expression. Um, and, and ever since that day I've basically been dressed in, you know, pastels ever since um right fashion as a signifier of sexuality and identity i want to i want to talk about how clothing can be used to create um visible queer identity well my mum used to make all my clothes mm -hmm. and mum and dad met ballroom dancing so mum had i had ball gowns to dress up in quite Fabulous. simple ball gowns actually from you know it was born in 1950 and then I did ballet and calisthenics and gymnastics and things. So there was always that bit of dressing up. And mum made my clothes. And then when I was a, becoming a teenager at about 12, I wanted them made a certain way. So she said, well, I think it's time that you learn to sew and you can make your own clothes because she realised she wasn't getting it right. <laughs> and she encouraged me. So I never used to go shopping really to buy clothes because I loved making my own, being inspired by what I saw, I guess, in Vogue magazines or whatever or different things like that and that's how I worked out how to dress myself so that's why I always made my own clothes and I think I guess I didn't really care what other people thought about what I wore even in those early days and that that makes a huge big difference probably and I wore glasses so if I took my glasses off I couldn't really see if you were liking what I wore or not probably but it's interesting to go through this discussion because it's just having the confidence to be who you are. And was it easier then when the world was a bit more conservative in a way or maybe they didn't take as much notice of us? Or It's, it's a really interesting topic because mm. with Peter and David, they really – well, Peter was an incredible person who could create these unbelievable costumes to dress up in. For some of us, we had the confidence to be going way out there mm. and – all of us loving bright colours meant that we became, I guess, a bit of a tribe of people who loved that. Mm. But sometimes there were earthy colours as well. So you can really wear what you want. I don't really care about fashion as fashion, that you are supposed to wear something. I don't really agree with that. Yeah. I think it's just have the confidence to have fun and to, you know, wear what you like, really. But that's not that always an easy thing to do. No, I guess that also plays into this idea of um, gender in fashion. Um, I've always found it so fascinating. Uh, like nobody was born, women weren't born wearing dresses, men weren't born wearing trousers, you know, cave people <laughs> weren't wearing, well, we don't really know what they were wearing, but I'm sure that these ideas of fashion were probably more utilitarian back then it was more about they warmth. would have been what suited the climate yeah they would have come from what you had around you to make your clothes out of and they would have all developed in that way like in that it's like in Australia you can be you're freezing cold in Melbourne so you wear different clothes then you're in Sydney and it's a lot more you know, this is just from my travels growing up as well actually and learning about things I'd be in Alice Springs 
that's where I developed bush couture from because, you know, I made clothes that you could get dirty with red dirt and they still looked fabulous. So, <laughs> Or you'd be in Darwin and you could only wear tropical things and then you'd be in Cairns and that's, that's another whole – this whole country is full of different climates that yeah. you have to adapt to as well. One of the pieces that is in the queer exhibition at the National Gallery is yes. uh, it says Black and White Calligraphy, 1978. And this piece uh, was designed for a female body, but it references men's tailoring traditions, um, yes. which I guess, where are we, 1978? Um, that was black taffeta and David hand-painted with white paint. I think he wrote our names on it also. It, uh -huh. And then it was something, I didn't always do this, but it was making a special taffeta jacket that I then cut into his piece of artwork that he'd painted but it was quite a simple shape so it wasn't changing it too much and that was the black taffeta jacket worn with black taffeta pants yeah you've had uh, such a positive influence on fashion in Australia and around the world with your designs and your the boldness and the colors and just the the wonder of it all where are you hoping Australian fashion heads in the future with regards to those sort of topics of identity and gender and and such. Well, what I'm really excited about is having been out to Indigenous communities from about 1980, starting going out to Alice Springs and Utopia and Karinga Arts and a few others, is to see, and from seeing their textiles that they were hand-painting in Batik in those early days, to see all the young Indigenous designers now coming out in the last five years or so and the last couple of years really a lot more and with some of the elders in a lot of the communities as well, doing amazing weavings, incredible hand-painted fabrics, working with printers who can print more commercial versions in collaboration with the community so that, you know, things can be done. And just to see the First Nations really coming out there with all genders and being able to dress the way they want to dress, mm. I'm really excited to see what they contribute mm. to the world. Because that's how you, you know, it works with your friends and how you love what your friend is doing and you want to wear that. It sort of starts off in those small ways and it only works, if it works and your friends love it then, it, then it can reach more people as well. And then it's, then it can spread to the world. So mm. it's, and with different genders, it'll be amazing to see what the young designers do now with, with more freedom in that regard. Mm. <laughs> well, I guess, uh, you know, for me, fashion is something that I love to wear and I think that one of the biggest joys is um is sharing it with friends like you know you're getting dressed up to go to a party even if it's a Mardi Gras my life is sort of um compartmentalized or I remember it by what I wore to Mardi Gras that year so if I right. if I need to trace a memory I'm like okay Ooh, so and what's going to happen this year this will be a special one I know Probably. I uh, I've been talking to my friend Marco Marco who um, has been making my Mardi Gras frocks for the last few years and because I'm hosting it on the telly so we're sort of right. talking we always talk about different ways to use rainbow because so, sometimes there's you know, endless ways there of using a rainbow are endless ways and I just love it because sometimes a rainbow in a commercial sense can become a little bit predictable you know people just sort of slap a rainbow on and I'm like oh it's such a a wonderful thing um, and finding Finding new ways to wear rainbow is my favourite Mardi Gras pastime. Um, 
Well, it's been absolutely a delight chatting you too today. I, I really appreciate you taking time. Um, oh, thank you. And I look well, forward- it's special friends to think about and amazing to be included in this exhibition with the work of David's, yeah. really, and to have a chat about the stories is, is wonderful. Well, I think in, in this exhibition we have got Clarence, Jenny, David yep. and Peter all being represented in queer. So these people that, you know, this conversation has been about, not only have you been side by side, you know, since the late 60s, but uh, you'll be right. side by side in the uh, queer exhibition at the National Gallery. Yes. Thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Well, thank it. you for inviting me. I love that chat with Linda. Now I want to go and dive into that wonderful queer collective of artists, Peter Tully, David McDermott, Jenny Key, and find out more about that wonderful time in Australian art history. I hope you also enjoyed my chat with Angela Hessen. Next episode, I'm going to be talking to Frida Taranzo Jaeger, who uses painting to explore the ideas of hybridity, sexuality, and autonomy. I'm also going to be chatting to curator Pip Wallace, we're going to be talking queer strategies. So this is a podcast you've been listening to, but there is so much art you can look at here at the National Gallery of Victoria in Melbourne. The exhibition titled Queer is free and it's on display from the 10th of March through to the 21st of August 2022. I'm Courtney Act. Thank you so much for listening.